Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in sports car episode, listener-driven Q&A, your thoughts, your questions, posed to myself, Graham Goodwin, and we're also going to have Stephen Kilby, both representing DailySportsCar.com. I believe I hear my British brother on the other line back from the bend as I use a lot of words to describe, but... Graham Goodwin. Yes, mate. I'm here. I'm here in a darkened room for reasons we may get into later. Uh, but uh, after a spectacular week and what is a spectacular new venue for international sports car racing, and we'll have some interviews covering off that uh, edition uh, on Inside the Sports Car Paddock, I hope, within the week. Uh, Dr. Sam Shaheen, who is the man behind the bend, and also Richard Crail, uh, who's been involved with that project from the start and was a guest presenter with me on the Asia Le Mans Series Round 2 uh, just last weekend. And who's been bent for many years. So a uh, perfect uh, fit for so Crailsy. Absolutely. So we're going to do a bit of a different format, dear listeners, this week. Normally, it's two people. This time it's going to be three. We're going to start the show with Graham's World of Knowledge, that being FIA World Endurance Championship, ACO, European Le Mans Series, etc., and some general content. I think we might start with the general content, Graham, although you're the official selector. There's a question or two in there that I think we need to use to open at the top. And then we are going to close with IMSA and fun with Stephen Kilby. So we're recording this on a Friday morning, and we're going to do Graham's bit. We'll need to record the rest with Mr. Kilby tomorrow on Saturday, so apologies for a bit of a later production than desired. Need to say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for making this show possible. Well, I might have tipped our hand a little bit, Graham. Uh, Where are we going first? For this week, I think we're going. Cars. I think we're going here general, aren't we? I think we are. I think we are. Which means that I am lobbying some to you. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. Why? Well, kind of forced our hand. If we were to start <laughs> anywhere else than a certain twenty-four hour race that kind of took part last weekend, um, the Lord said, thou shall not continue to race uh, due to all the crazy weather being experienced in Dubai. We did see, Graham, weather indeed was not the craziest thing witnessed in Dubai. Uh, Someone using a cellular telephone held up uh, in portrait filming capacity gave us this. And we'll start with Stephen Gate. What are your thoughts on the Barwell Dubai 24-hour pit incident, Graham? Bar, the Barwell team's lack of contrition and criticism towards their employee is disgraceful. Only okay. stating the incident was regrettable and the mechanic responsible is, quote, mortified. Hashtag me personally. He should be banned permanently. So before we answer Stephen's question, Please set the stage on what happened for those who are unaware. 
Well, let's set the stage first on what happened in Dubai, uh, biblical uh, rain in Dubai. And, of course, the circuit just not prepared uh, in terms of drainage for that kind of level of uh, downpour. Not extensive drainage, as you'd expect on a US or a UK track, for instance, and what little drainage they do have, let's be blunt, is full of sand. Uh, that led to extensive parts of the circuit being extensively flooded, to the circuit access tunnel being um, seriously flooded, um, and only seven hours running completed in the 24-hour race. But that's not the reason for the global interest. It is indeed because of the uh, video clip you're describing. And to set the scene, MRS GT with uh, a cup-class uh, Porsche being released from the pits in a slightly kind of uh, Keystone Cops fashion. Uh, but ahead of them, uh, the... Barwell Lamborghini, which I believe at the time this pit stop was taking place under full course yellow, was leading the race. They'd opted to pit the car twice in close succession to swap uh, drivers to take uh, take uh, advantage of getting burning some am driver time in the Lamborghini. The pit lane uh, with 80 plus cars uh, for that race was. Uh, well, I've seen it where it's been 90 plus and it's chaotic. It's way too many cars in that pit lane. Uh, MRS uh, trying to release the car. To be blunt, the, the release rather fumbled by the car controller looking for a slot, but putting himself in a position of some danger. Uh, and at the same time, the uh, Barwell team looking to change tyres on the Lamborghini and the guy looking, I think, for the rear left uh, clashed with the MRS car controller, pushed him, uh, but unfortunately pushed him just as the car, the Porsche, was launched and it caught uh, the MRS uh, car controller around the throat, I think, with the right rear upright from the rear wing. Rear wing end plate, yeah. Yeah, I think we're very lucky that that guy is still with us. Um, and we should mention that it, this wasn't a collision between the two men. This wasn't no, was this wasn't one person hurriedly going in one direction, one in the other, and like we see in movies, they bump hard and drop their coffee and their papers and they drop to their uh, knees and pick them up and help one another go. <clears throat> this was a case of the person with the <clears throat> left rear tire on the Barwell team used like throwing an elbow I mean, this is something that American football, like this would be a quality American football hit, uh, a defensive player uh, trying to drop a receiver or a running back. I mean, this was, this was an incidental contact. This was, Sorry. I am using my momentum, the weight and force of me carrying this heavy wheel. I am moving at like a freight train you are in my way and basically hockey style winged the guy uh, with his left arm and elbow, uh, which threw him into the side of his exiting car. Unfortunately, with the angle and the way and the force that had happened, uh, this guy hit the car while the car was leaving. His head yep. connected with the rear end of the rear wing, spun him around like a top 
this wasn't a bounce off the side of the car. This was was getting lifted off of his feet and spun around. Uh, It was, I I have seen some really dumb, bad things on pit lane from negligence. I've had a crew member at one race where I was a refueler in an endurance race uh, who was on drugs, and she decided to start hitting me uh, while refueling, which is a pretty interesting thing. Um, I've seen and experienced a pretty crazy behavior. This is one, Graham, that indefensible. Well, I think think what I'd say is this. Was there intent to injure? I don't believe there was, okay? Um, But the reality was hands were laid on, and those hands were laid on in a situation where that uh, Barwell mechanic was concentrating on one thing, and one thing only, his task in hand. We can come back to that in a moment. The problem was that he removed the MRS team member from his place of safety to a place which profoundly wasn't safe. So the one lesson above any all, any, any other that should be taken from this is just don't put hands on people in pit lane. In any circumstances, just don't do that. If you want to get to the stage where you don't want to be in a position where everybody's insisting on full protective gear, which is not required, by the way, for a Creventic race, if you don't want the debate about whether or not 80 cars is too many, then keep your hands off. There's a great phrase that is used in road traffic law um, in the UK, and it's driving or riding without due care and attention. And that, I think, is what we're talking about here, because there's two, two points here, aren't there? There's the action and the consequence. The action was reckless. It's as simple as that. It was reckless. And it was done without thought to what the consequences might be for the other individual. And I think that's the key here. Did the guy mean to push him into the rear wing end plate of the Porsche? No, he didn't. But in, in putting hands on in the way that he did, he put him at risk that that could have happened. And that is the point here. What should happen to the Barwell guy? I wasn't there. Not for me to actually make that decision. Um, we're very lucky that we haven't got, frankly, a dead MRS mechanic in that situation. Very lucky indeed. I neither know nor care, because I wasn't there, about what happened after. Uh, I know that the Barwell team received, I think, a four-minute uh, stop-and-hold penalty for the incident. Uh, but the reality here is that, to my mind, comes under – you can call it one thing or the other – without you care and attention on the part of the Barwell mechanic or reckless. The reality was that action had a dramatic consequence, and lessons have to be learned. And to my mind – I'm afraid the one lesson you can draw from that is you cannot put hands on people in that situation. What you what say you, Marshall? This was just an act of aggression. I mean, it's all that it was. The The behavior of the Barwell mechanic was dickish at best. I completely understand the I have a job to do and you are in my way. The main necessity for a crew member on pit lane and this is the most generic of statements because it's not specific to sports car open wheel stock car sports car i realize rally cars don't have quote pit lane but anytime a crew member is interacting with vehicles on pit lane awareness is the absolute core 
requirement before anything else. Whatever your specialty might be, changing a tire, refueling, driver change, the car controller, whatever it is, before you do your job, the base expectation is you will be aware and alert of your surroundings because without that firmly in place, your death, your injury and death or injury to others is extremely amplified. The possibility of that happening skyrockets. So whenever I put on my tabard to go over the pit wall and shoot photographs, there is a complete realignment of my mindset. Okay, I'm not walking around the paddock. I'm not sitting in a media center. I'm in a place where heavy mechanized objects are moving while they're not doing the 200 miles an hour that they are on the racetrack. They are still traveling between zero and 50 to 60 miles per hour based on whatever the pit lane speed limit is. Trust me, that's slow compared to what they can do in the racetrack, Graham. Try walking in front of a 2,000 or 3,000 pound vehicle (laughs) going 30 miles an hour. It will make you not have legs or a head or a life or many other things. So it is just this bizarre. It's essentially you're working while on the highway. You're working while on busy city streets. And this is your workplace. So you really need to be up and aware and alert, not only for yourself and what you're doing, so you don't get hit, run over, or otherwise, but possibly invite others into such a dreadful scenario. So having worked also on the team side, going over pit walls, doing these exact things, changing tires, refueling. When I watched that video, I wasn't thinking media guy. I was thinking as crew member guy. And I've seen that happen many ways before. Someone's in your way, other crew, someone leaves a tire out that's going to slow you, your car coming in, their air hose is in the way. There's a lot of little, to use a modern term, microaggressions that take place, Graham. Those, while not good, not uncommon. You deal with it, whatever, after the race, hey man, sorry I got in your face, or yell, you know, my bad. But there's a general sense of I'm aware and alert. The second factor to that is, and we're going to take care of each other. We're all competitors, but for those going over the proverbial pit wall to work in the middle of traffic, middle of the highway, we do have to maintain some sort of care among one another so that what I'm doing doesn't hurt you, uh, does not place risk on your life it's an informal thing it's not like all the pit crews get together before every race hold hands and say we're brothers and sisters and we will no but there's just a social bond a a professional bond that needs to be adhered to i know nothing about the barwell crew member where they come from their experience anything else what came to mind as a possibility is this person might be young-ish and might not have a ton of experience to have therefore learned or fully grasped that sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. Yeah, 
that team next to you, behind you, whatever is going to possibly interfere or interrupt or inconvenience you during a long race. It's going to happen. Happens to every team. Whether it's a full factory, LMP1, this, doesn't matter. Happens to every single team in every endurance race. Car in front of you, car behind you, there's going to be something that slows you down, that hinders you. It's what happens when you pack a lot of cars onto a pit lane for a full day of racing. But part of the understanding as well is if someone does something that inconveniences you, what you don't do is turn into a thug and not just intentionally use your body weight and your arm to knock someone out of the way. But while you, I would have to believe, have seen and grasp the fact that a car is exiting pit lane also happens to be this person who's in your way, their car. Some might say, well, maybe he didn't see the cars leaving. Well, the person was looking up enough to know the, tra- the trajectory to follow with his feet, to run, to go to the corner of the car where he had to change that tire. That also happened to be the place where a car and a person converged upon. So I don't buy that. So what stands out overall, Graham, is this person to me demonstrated they do not understand what servicing a race car is about how it should be done, the general care required, taking care of one another, the awareness that is required, the situational decision-making. I mean, every possible test of whether a person is ready or has the skills and mental aptitude to do this, every single one of those tests were failed in a two- or three-second span in that video. So... I can't tell Barwell what they should do with this person. I can say if they were my crew member, they'd no longer be my crew member. Uh, And I would make sure that until that person came back with massive apologies and a detailed plan on how they are going to improve themselves and their decision-making skills, I would absolutely make sure those that I know in the industry, hey, if this person shows up at your doorstep, call me. I'll gladly give you reasons why they're not ready to go over the pit wall for you. So that was just demonstrated. That's not opinion, right? This isn't taking it This isn't a hot take on the situation. A person was put in a situation that a hundred other people were during that race, servicing their cars. One person stood out with epically poor decision-making uh, capabilities and risked someone's life and injured someone all unnecessarily. There was no accident involved here. So that's where this is bad. That's why this is bad. What the last thing I'll mention here, and for those who are listening for the first time, we usually open with a significant topic and spend a little while on it. Thing I found amusing, Graham, was a number of people responded, well, He did it, not the team. He should be penalized, not the team. Team wasn't responsible for that. I I might need some help in how anyone arrives at that conclusion. This is a team sport. This isn't tennis. (laughs) The guy holding the 
left rear tire. This isn't just him running out by himself doing all the work by himself and driving the car and etc. etc. This is a team sport. If we look at whatever the major stick and ball type sport is, when the referee pulls out that red card or blows the whistle and a person shoots a shot, kicks the ball, does whatever it might be, the errant actions of one in a team sport affect the entire team. The entire team is penalized. How they came up with a four-minute penalty for that, that to me is the thing that also stands out as insane, Graham. You want to talk about setting a standard of expectation? I don't believe that you have to ban the car and do all kinds of things like that. But I do believe that you have to send a message that such behavior is never going to be tolerated again. Do you think that was achieved with a four-minute time penalty? I don't. Um, I mean, I have a, a firm view across all of these things. very easy to say it from a sedentary position, but I can give you a, another parallel, if you like, a, a debate that I got involved with with a senior media handler of a major, uh, major championship, having listened to the media briefing that goes to all the photographers that might be going trackside or on pit lane. And that briefing used to include um, a series of sentences. I think you've almost certainly been in this briefing, Marshall, where it said... If the live TV cameramen push her out of the way to get the shot, it's important that they get there. To which my response privately was twofold. One is nobody should be laying hands on anybody in pit lane, and there's a good reason for that. If you've chosen, as a photographer, a, a place to stand, you've done so with reference to two factors, or three factors, actually, to get the shot you want, um, to be out of the way of the team, and to look after your own safety. If anybody lays hands on you in that situation, they at best risk compromising any one, if not all three of those things. It's unacceptable. There should be no hands-on in those situations. And uh, I think in this, in this instance, I feel extremely sorry for the, the guy that was hit very hard by the car. Do I feel sorry for the Barwell guy? I do. I sort of get it. Carly D. Race doesn't want to be the guy that lets them down. But, you know, you're right. The reality is he did what he did um, without effectively looking around him to see whether or not there was risk in doing so. It was a reckless action. It's as simple as that. I'll throw in one item here, which maybe contradicts something you said, but it's not meant to be a contradiction uh, of the principle. There is one scenario where placing hands on someone in pit lane is accepted and appreciated. And it actually speaks to that brotherhood and sisterhood of, uh, I guess, uh, that union of taking care of one another. It happens every session in every major racing series. And that is a car is pitting or a car is leaving pit lane, and someone, whether it's a photographer, video person, or just a crew member on the team, again, for any of you or behind you, it hasn't seen or isn't fully aware, 
And so it is not uncommon at all for a crew member to come and grab you by the shoulder a little bit and or, you know, the back of your shirt and just pull you back a foot. And it's not done in a mean or aggressive way. It's, hey, we need to do our business. We need to let our car go. You're turned around shooting the car in front, whatever it might be. You are tending to the rear wing of your car and not seeing that your leg is sticking out a little bit. That's the help. That's the making sure everyone goes home in one piece. I have it happen about once a year, and it pisses me off to no end, Graham, because I really try to do my best to be hyper aware of everything that's happening, not walk, step, move, whatever that's going to impede a team in their work. You never want to be that guy. Invariably, it's going to happen just percentage-wise. Odds are it's going to happen at least once a year. Usually does. And it's just someone, like I said, could be a hand that just kind of gently brushes you back a little bit just to allow a car to come in or allow a car to leave. Those are the things you appreciate because it's not done out of hostility. It's if I don't take care of that person, they could get hit and they don't know it. And I don't want that to happen. That's, that's when things work properly. Uh, that's where someone, that's where the guy with the tire getting ready to run out and change that tire sees the, the car controller who's a little bit oblivious and maybe following the car too far down pit lane starts waving something. Hey, I'm coming pointing, just trying to get that person's attention. Um, when you don't bother to do that and you just bull rush the guy and chuck him into the side of a car. Yeah. That's when, uh, things break down. My friend, we're going to go to David shut heard rumors regarding an endurance race at Indy. Any idea what series this might be for? I don't know, Graham. Are there rumors in the world about? Well, there endurance? is going to be a, 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 well, there is going to be an endurance race in Indy, isn't there? That, and what uh, is Indy, the, by the way? I've never heard of this. This uh, I think is isn't isn't it Indy? It, it's mm, international de chevaux, I believe, is Ooh. what's coming there. <laughs> well, look. First things first. There is certainly going to be an endurance sports car or GT race in Indianapolis, and it will happen this year. It's part of the Intercontinental GT uh, Challenge. That uh, will happen. I think it's an eight-hour race in Indy they've got uh, this year. MP replacing the California eight hours. Yes, but have we heard confirmation? It's eight consecutive hours. <laughs> Are they just? You know, we're going to go from two to three. It's probably come back around six. Uh, now that would be interesting. Wouldn't it just? But it's an interesting time for Indianapolis. Now, under, obviously, Ron Chapensky's ownership. I don't know what your take is on this one, but one would guess he's going to want to sweat that asset a little bit more than it has been in the past. Yeah, I I don't know how long this race is meant to survive at Indy. This deal was done before Roger was in the frame. I would imagine he will look at this and see absolutely barren grandstands and realize that whatever sanction fee might be coming their way might not uh, might not be the salve necessary to allow the race to continue obviously motor racing circuits depend on money to survive I think Roger would come in with a mindset more along the lines of want to have races want to have events 
but if they make us look like no one wants to show up to our track, that's not the marketing mindset a Roger Penske would have. So this, I think, would need to be a significant success financially for the track for its brand new owner who came in after this deal is done to consider it continuing for multiple years would say that Roger being the defending IMSA DPI championship winning team owner might be talking to IMSA about being there as the primary sports car event of the year in future years. So this is an interesting one. Uh, I Fear it might be a bit of an orphaned event, Graham. Could be a one and done, uh, but we'll have to see what it ends up meaning to the track financially uh, before any other decisions are made. Let's go to our pal Daniel Summersgill. says, whose idea, Graham, was it to hold the 24 hours of Porto Mayao on the same weekend as the 24 hours of Le Mans? Hashtag me personally. It makes no sense to have two endurance races on the same weekend with only so many drivers. Surely. This will be to the detriment of Portimao. Well, yes, there's not going to be a great deal of crossover, I think is what it comes down to. Um, I've not really caught up with the Creventic guys to find out what the uh, the idea behind this is. Is it 24 hours of Portimao? I thought they'd got their new venue uh, with Test Day. Um, uh, having a bit of a clash there, but... I'm not a fan of flashes of insurance events of any kind of ilk. It makes my life more difficult for one thing. Um does rather beg the question, if there is a clash, uh, there is a commonality of commentary team for those two events. Hmm. Let's go to another Creventic-related question from our pal Right Turn Lover before we make a left turn towards Weck Asim Elms Echo. Asks, are the 24-hour series... Races in hot water, not because they're holding their blue ribbon event on a track without drainage, but because the number of entrants seemed to be down in general and not just in Dubai. What are your thoughts there, Graham? Are we seeing a bit of a downturn and is it related to the organizers or global market or what? I think it's a whole range of things. Number one is there are a lot more places where people can now race their GT or TCR car. Um, so, for instance, if you're a team with GT4 cars, there's a lot more places you can race them now than there were even two or three years ago. I think they pushed the boat out, and that's not another drainage-related pun. It's a reality. Too far in recent years with you know, Dubai nudging 100 entries, and it was just way too many cars. Um, I've been at uh, very well-supported Creventic events. I've been at Creventic uh, events which have underwhelmed in terms of numbers. They are generally very, very happy places to be. Uh, this is an organization that looks after its customers very well. But they have had a bit of a tendency to experiment rapidly with trying to expand their, their kind of product portfolio and have taken a few wrong turns. They are inevitably as well, though, MP, going to be hit by the same factors we've talked about time and time again in terms of just how much these GT3 cars in particular cost a campaign. And that's going to hit hard and harder when you're talking about the more am of the pro-am uh, end of the marketplace, which is where Creventic tends to be. 
We are going to move to Weck and goodies. And we're going to start with Ryan Terpstra. Graham, what did you think of The Bend? So tell us a little bit about the weekend. I was joking on last week's episode with Stephen Kilby that you were down under for the Bathurst 1 or 2. Or, <laughs> I'm not sure. It was some sort of weird, very abbreviated endurance race. But kidding aside, it, you were it, actually it, at The Bend. We were at The Bend. So The Bend Motorsport Park, if you're not aware, is it's got a multi-format um, uh, track uh, about an hour and a half out of the beautiful city of Adelaide in South Australia, um, developed by the Shaheen family, uh, who've made their money with a variety of companies, but principally service stations in South Australia. Um, and it's an absolutely spectacular new international standard facility. A little flat, although there is some rise and fall, Absolutely wonderful viewing for spectators on the infield. I um, was chatting to one or two uh, local fans, and they were saying, you know, you can sit there in your car on one of the banked um, spectator areas. So, you know, uh, in what at, at times was 40 degrees plus of heat, so you can sit in the car with your air conditioning on and see 80 to 90% of that 7.7-kilometer circuit. That's the plus side. Downside? Um, it's a long lap. It meant there was a long time before we got into uh, into traffic, so like 20 minutes before I think the first car, undelayed car, was actually lapped. Uh, and it also meant that when we got into caution periods, we did tend to develop long gaps between cars in each class pretty darn quickly. Uh, it also meant, too, that when we had a safety car, we did, uh, that it did rather interrupt one or two of the class battles with the traditional lap beam put on uh, numbers of cars in those in those uh, in those uh, those high quality battles. Another upside, if ever there was an international venue where the people behind it were prepared to listen to that kind of feedback and make a change if they could, then this one is it. There is absolutely an intent to make this a must-have on an international racing calendar. It has caught the attention of other championships, and I think we'll be seeing more of it on international calendars if they can get over the, uh, the issues of the cost and the feasibility of logistics to um, that end of the uh, the planet. Did hear a very interesting uh, conversation with a couple of uh, locally based people I've got a lot of respect for. And what they were saying is, wouldn't it be a fabulous thing if this could be a breakthrough moment for SRO and ACO to find common ground and put together what's happening with Asia Le Mans series down under, and what's happening with the other great endurance race um, you know, in sports car racing and GT racing in Australia, that being, of course, the early February's Bathurst 12-hour, and have that maybe two weeks apart, maybe even a week apart, and have something called Endurance Racing Festival. Now, that would be something, you know, when Australia's got the national crisis it's dealing with now back under control for future years, that could be something well worth pushing as being the next big set of questions that the ACO and a rival uh, race organiser might well want to ask themselves. Thoroughly brilliant weekend had by all. If you're watching the TV broadcast, I apologise for 
my rather squinty look at the end of the uh, the broadcast, uh, suffering with some pretty serious eye trouble, uh, which is one of the reasons why, by the way, we've got this slightly disjointed format this weekend. Because at the moment, I will tell you, I'm lying in a darkened room, having just had some shards of plastic removed from my eye, um, which I had absolutely no idea were there. Neither did the two other doctors that actually examined me. Um, so uh, it did make bright sunshine and studio lights really rather uncomfortable but uh, looking to set to be mended in good time to leave next week for Daytona only suggestion here is I'm not sure how you use plastic forks while eating but just from an <laughs> aim standpoint a little bit lower to your mouth brother less stabbing in the eye so that a that's... little bit little bit less frenzied activity maybe on that front but uh, god knows how it happened absolutely no idea how they got there my guess is uh, something blown into my eye while walking the dog or something but uh, highly uncomfortable not something i recommend to people to try i can tell you that for nothing a couple more bendy questions here our pal damien peachman asks you think graham there's ever a chance the ben could host a WEC race there in his native land of Australia. Obviously, the could is always, like, of course, they could. But after seeing it in person and sporty cars, the exact kind that we have in the WEC, is that something that you would say go back to a Monsieur Fillon, Monsieur Nouveau, and say, hey, got to make this happen? Uh, well, Pierre was down there um, for the race weekend. I spoke to him briefly post-race, and he said, we must come back here. Um, Gerard Deveau, I know, has visited, and I believe has visited more than once. The bend was on the um, rather controversial list of eight circuits that uh, WEC asked for opinions on. It was on that list of eight. Uh, I wouldn't be remotely surprised to see them have another look at it. The interesting thing will will be whether or not they go for the 7.7-kilometer circuit or the shorter international circuit which the v8 supercars have actually run the in terms of the response from the drivers take a look at harry tinknell's twitter feed um i know sam shaheen was delighted with the response there and the drivers were raving about this being an absolutely brilliant driver circuit but there's a big difference between a lap in extremis uh, in a fabulous sports car and being able to race that. Um, I did see there were a couple of places around that track where for extended periods uh, it was difficult for cars to pass. Not normally too much of an issue if you're dealing with something like V8 supercars where it's a single class. Big issue if you're dealing with a three or four class race. Am I hearing a cat on your end for once? That is indeed TSC Cats. That is Tango trying to get into this room because yeah. this is where she <laughs> sleeps and sleeps for a pretty extended period of time. This is so a first. Is no, no, and it's I'll, all uh, good. This is a first I think, on I'm my podcast. She's trying to get in or trying to get out. <laughs> no, but this is amazing. We're hearing cats meow on my podcast, and damn it, it's uh, not one of my own. It's the first she's time. She's get out, I think. Hang on a second. Is that you, babe? Yes, she is. It's very dark in here, so so we're just going to let her out, and away she goes. Wow, because my two idiots are sleeping to the right here. They come in each morning and sleep on top of a crate that I've yet to unpack that I threw a blanket or a towel on top of. So Rocky and Rosie are actually sleeping, not interrupting. I heard cats, and I looked over, and those fools no, were asleep. Was, I'm was, so was happy. 
my apologies, it wasn't Diasica, it was her stunt double. And what he'd actually heard was uh, my good lady downstairs rattling the dinner, uh, dinner plates. And uh, he knows that's a precursor for fishy-based goodness. So uh, off he goes now. I love it. Uh, I love the, it. <laughs> oh, this is the <laughs> best. I'm so happy. Uh, let's see. Let's go to uh, Joe Van Galen. Another Ben question says, good racing. But Graham, where were the fans? Do they all wander around in that massive front stretch complex? It seemed like a very empty place. He says, I know very little of Aussie racing, unless it's around Mount Panorama. So maybe I'm missing something? Uh, I think there were numbers of people there. There was a, I was on pit lane for the autograph session. It was pretty well filled. Uh, Two things I'd say. One is there are lots of balconies on the um, the main pits row uh, building and they were pretty well full filled throughout. It was about 32 degrees, remember, as well. So a lot of people will have likely been watching from uh, some position of protection. I do know as well there were a fair number of people out on the circuit. And here's the point with a 7.7 kilometer circuit, there's quite a lot of places where they can go. Uh, was it tens and th- of thousands? No, it absolutely wasn't. But they're trying to build something here. I actually spent my day after the event in the city of Adelaide with a couple of our photographers and uh, we chose to go and walk the old Grand Prix circuit in the city of Adelaide. That was quite interesting. Yeah. Um, And actually they're setting up the... um, the infrastructure for the Adelaide 400, which is the V8 supercars uh, race. And uh, the big change, by the way, from back in the day is that the huge pit lane complex is entirely temporary and it dwarfs very many permanent circuits um, complexes that I've seen before. I mean, it's an extraordinary undertaking. But uh, look, there is absolutely a culture in South Australia, in the city of Adelaide, prompted by uh, that Grand Prix, 11 years I think it did on the streets of, uh, of Adelaide. And there's a number of people that both you and I know uh, that came into motorsport, not least because of the influence of that Grand Prix. The likes of Paul Ryan, uh, an Adelaidean, Richard Crail, another one. Uh, both of our uh, media um, ladies for the Asian Le Mans series come from the city of Adelaide. Uh, Nick Foster, who was actually in one of the LMP2 cars, was a fence hanger at the age of seven for the race of a thousand years in 2000. And that was the race that made him you know, made his mind up that what he wanted to do more than anything else was to be a racing driver. So it'll come. Uh, it's, it's, it's a relatively new uh, circuit. It's a relatively new facility. It's a little way out of town. It's an hour and a half or so out of town, but that's not that far. But what I would say is the local media uh, were there and their response to it was very positive. We had a couple of Big name local driver Shane van Gisbergen uh, featured in a car that could have won that race, but eventually didn't. Eventually suffered a gearbox failure. But Shane was hugely impressive in his first LMP2 uh, outing, um, and I think this is this is an event that could grow. And you know, we talked time and time again, haven't we, MP, about WEC, for instance, looking for opportunities to have a blue ribboned event uh, over and above just the Le Mans 24 hours. Well, for the Asia Le Mans series, it could be this one. This could be the one that they grow to be something rather special. Hope they do. Hope we go back there because 
we were ex- made to feel extremely welcome. And that's not a universal feeling in the world of uh, motorsports. And certainly after our opening round, um, it, we felt a lot, awful lot more welcome in South Australia, despite the travails of the Australian people and the government agencies at the moment, than we did at our previous stop. Would also just throw in here quickly, Graham, that this is a newish facility. It's not necessarily right on top of a, a local city. There's obviously major, major cities nearby, but not right on top of it. So it does suffer a little bit of the, hey, we're here. You might not completely know about it. We'd love to have you come out, but this might not be something where uh, we think that immediately, right away, is going to absolutely explode in terms of popularity. Just not a surprise to me that in terms of crowd size, not insane. Also, have to admit, while we both love the Asian Le Mans series, it's not a headlining property that would cause most people to jump off of their couches and fly to the bend. So wasn't a shocker to me that the race nope, wasn't oversubscribed. Let's go. I think it's fair. Go ahead, sir. Oh, all right. Let's go to Mike Hogg. Says, for the attention of our DSC representative this week, excellent Asian Le Mans series at the Bend. Enjoyed the unrestrictive live stream. My question was the reason for the RLR car going up in smoke eventually determined. Hashtag Mike says, me personally, it's been a long time since I saw a car trailing flaming debris at speed like that. So maybe set the stage for those who don't know about what happened. Uh, absolutely. John Ferrano at the wheel of the Orica 05, um, sort of mid-race when all of a sudden, first shot we got was some flaming debris in the middle of the road. And uh, it had come just after I got an extended uh, full course caution. The answer is, I believe the cause is now known, uh, was not necessarily unpredictable it's something we had seen with that same drivetrain going back to the open cockpit eras it comes as a result of the way in which the car manages itself under a full course caution um and uh the way in which the speed limiter operates and uh known issue uh the way in which that was managed by driver and team i think has been fault found and has been found that effectively you know, it just wasn't done in the most sensible way to avoid that risk. Uh, it was an exhaust fire, without a shadow of a doubt, um, melted some of the componentry around it, and we all saw the net result of that. The car, absolutely repairable. The difficulty is it's got to go back to Orica to be repaired, so we wait and see. Uh, for two reasons, or three reasons. One, it's a pretty short turnaround before we go to uh, Sepang, in mid-February to, of course, that period of time in the meantime uh, also impacts on uh, Orica's preparations for, amongst other things, uh, Daytona, depending on how the car got back there. And three, as we said before, Australia's got a whole lot of things going for it. The one thing that's a major difficulty is logistically, because of the distance, Everything is more difficult and more expensive. That's one of the big challenges. And let's wait and see if RLRM Sport can get over that. And we can see the 59 car back and rolling in Malaysia uh, in about three, four weeks' time. I spoke with reigning V8 supercar, Australian supercar champ Scotty McLaughlin on Monday after his maiden IndyCar test. 
and he was mentioning while driving to the airport leaving Sebring that the time from when he gets on that got on that flight in Florida to getting home uh, in Australia 35 hours so wow <laughs> when you mention uh yeah when you mention distance time and ease yes uh boy not exactly the easiest thing for some let's get to uh some more here graham um i'm going to have to leave here shortly because we have a pretty busy day of appointments so uh let's see let's go to captain brunch what are the odds of a true world sports car championship with common rules across europe u.s and asia in his lifetime I don't know if if you key off of any of those words, but true world sports car championship is what jumps out to me. Knowing that convergence is a thing that we think is, you know, moving in a positive direction, although undefined as to what it would be. But if we were to get to a point of convergence, Graham, do you think we could see an all-in world sports car championship that's, say, different from what the WEC does? Well, okay, the first thing to say is we have got a global world championship, and that is the WEC, and they are common uh, rules for some of those classes, and those classes exist in all the places you've actually just mentioned. I think, though, you're asking a slightly different different question. I think you're asking, is there a possibility that effectively you've got uh, a best-of championship that involves the uh, Blue Ribbon events from IMSA, the Blue Ribbon events from SRO's world and the Le Mans 24 Hours. I think that's what you're asking. I think the answer there comes with a major health warning. There are two issues of convergence that would need to happen to allow even the possibility of that happening. One is that we, what we've talked about time and time again, what happens in the, in the near future for the global top class of sports car racing we've currently got dpi dpi 2.0 on the way we've got lmp1 with hypercar on the way that's a very live subject and you know we hope that there's going to be an answer on that one in the very near future the second part of it is what happens with gt because of course convergence of the top level of sports car racing potentially has an impact simply because of who might be involved in that potentially has an impact on GTLM, GTE Pro, um, and that then leaves a second division, a, a second um, decision rather of convergence, which is, is GTE uh, slash GTLM sustainable beyond the next three, four years, and or do we then get to a position where something that looks remarkably like what GT3 looks now becomes a global solution for everybody? My view is that we'll see both of those things within, well within the decade. Uh, I think conversion, uh, convergence for the top class of sports car racing, I hope we're going to see and see very soon. Convergence in terms of GT, I think, might be a little longer in coming, but I think there is almost an inevitability that that might now happen. That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question, does that per se mean that you would put together a best of championship? I think the answer there is no. And the reason for that is because you've got three very commercially based organizations, IMSA, SRO, ACO slash LMEM, 
And at the moment, I don't think there is a will or indeed a need for that to happen. It's a very different question as to whether or not the cars could compete in each other's races, a standalone race. I think that may very well happen. It already can happen, of course, at Daytona with the GT3s. Um, I think we we may well get to the stage where um, cars that currently aren't welcome at some races will be, but will that lead to a separate championship? At the moment, I don't think it will. That's where we are, I think. Going to take two more questions here on WEC. Aslam Elms, ACO, and whatnot know that that means that there are a number that we will have not gotten to this week. As we always say, please send them back in if you want us to run through them uh, for sure. We haven't really figured out what we're going to do next week for recording the week in sports cars while you are in Daytona and I am not. But certainly throw these back in, the ones we didn't get to, and we can address them next week. Graham, we have two questions to go in the world of WEC, ASM, ELMS, and ACO. And if you would like us to get to the questions we did not answer, please fire them in for next week, dear listeners, and we will do our best to cover this ground. Stephen Gardner says, Graham, what impact do you think Aston Martin's financial problems and the potential investment from Lance Stroll's father, Lawrence Stroll, will have on their sports car racing programs, both current and hypercar? Uh, It's a good question. Uh, First things first, there's a lot of not-known-knowns, if you like. Uh, I'm sure there will be all sorts of people interested in the Aston Martin brand. Um, It would appear that there are some discussions underway because of the performance of the public uh, share offering from the company. Whatever happens, I sincerely hope that uh, whoever's going to be in charge moving forward carries on the pretty peerless um, commitment that Aston Martin has actually shown to promoting their brand through motorsports, whether or not that's through the, the co-branding they do with Red Bull Racing and Formula One, whether or not it's what they do with GT Racing, both on a factory or a customer basis. It's been, I think, a real success for Aston Martin. Uh, let's hope that continues. Um, the reality in terms of uh, the hypercar program, the answer is we don't know. We know that there's been some significant signings uh, to both the road and the race car sides of that program. But in terms of progress, we didn't expect to hear much, but we've heard very, very little indeed. Um, I hope things are going to be fine. It would not be a major surprise to hear that there's some recasting at some point. But every single time I've asked the question, the answer that's been given has been pretty well scripted, which is nothing different to what we've already announced. There we go. All right, our final question goes to Peter Safran, who says, It has been reported that two of the current, two of the three current DPI manufacturers on the IMSA front here, really are not interested in hybrid systems, while series in Europe seem to be pushing it. Do you think this is a divide, Graham, between Euro and American auto customer demands? Uh, yeah, shock horror gaps uh, on the internet now on uh, weekend sports cars. I think three to four months ago we talked about this, and I seem to recall it was one that you answered in respect to a, an IMSA question. So, you know, I think the answer here is there's nothing new. It's not quite move along there because it's clearly a significant story, but the reality was 
we discussed it, you asked it, we discussed it, and I'm pretty certain you wrote about it in Racer as well, MP. I think this was way pre-Christmas. I've got a feeling it might have been late summer, early autumn. Uh, yeah, I mean, would just say, Peter, if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, yes, this topic, which we've broached many, many times over the last, I don't know, however many months, um, would certainly be something that uh, we have gone into pretty heavy discussion on. Would also say we haven't really broached this much in recent weeks. I don't know, maybe a month. Uh, it's been a little while since we've gone into the hybridization is really falling out of favor among some DPI manufacturers. We've also mentioned that while some of the current manufacturers have taken a taken had taken a fairly dim view on hybridization for the 2022 regulations that other manufacturers who are not currently in the series but have expressed extreme interest have said it is a core tenet of their participation. I th- will just we'll share here. Uh, there's a, a new... Well, I started writing this in December, and for a variety of reasons I'm not getting it done as quickly as I wanted to, but I've picked it back up. Hope to have it out here maybe on Monday. Just a, a look at an overarching item regarding technology and racing and some very real changes, some very real concerns that sanctioning bodies are currently facing as a result of uh, really massive evolutions at a very rapid rate in the automotive world. So, there's something related here. Uh, someone, quote, and I'm using air quotes, reporting that uh, two of the three current DPI manufacturers are not interested in hybrid systems. I would say that's old news. Uh, we've been saying that here for a long time. The fact that we haven't been saying that for the past little while is maybe indicative of something else. And so I'll get into that in the little opinion insider analysis piece coming here to racer.com probably Monday or Tuesday, Peter. So you might give that a read and it might give you a more definitive answer to your question would definitely say that uh, you've picked up on something very, very sharp. Mr. Goodwin, we got to go. So thank you to you. We need to figure out when we're going to capture the week in sports cars while you're in Daytona next week and I am not. And hopefully we can spend a little bit more time on whatever. And I'll look forward to getting a hold of young Stephen Kilby to get IMSA and fun recorded tomorrow, Saturday, and let this episode fly. And we have silence yet again. And can you hear me now? I can. And I'm not editing this out. I'm leaving it. It's, it's okay. the brilliance well, I, of who I'll, we are I'll and what repeat. we do. <laughs> I'll repeat what I was trying to say earlier, which was uh, hopefully we can find safe haven in one of the radio rooms at Daytona and get uh, weekend sports cars done, at least in part, from amidst the paddock at Daytona International Speedway, where we expect numerous very important story strands to be around. Yes, and I did reserve my traditional radio room for you and uh and whatnot to use and maybe like last year i think we had a uh, good old juan monterrier in there maybe you can drag a driver in to be part of uh, the episode oh, without the a shadow of a doubt. 
without a shadow of a doubt. I've got a few few ideas on that front. Uh, let's wait and see what can. Uh, I think it's my first wait and see of the program. Yes, uh, ah! there you go. Hashtag let's uh, wait but, and see. We got one. But but there will, I can assure you, be a weekend sports cars favourite featuring prominently in the press room this year. More on that next week. We are back to finish the week in sports cars with Stephen Kilby, our sergeant-at-arms, the young Jedi of DailySportsCar.com. About a day later than expected, but, you know, a Sunday posting is not the worst thing in the world. Graham Goodwin and I completed his world. Now Stephen's going to help me complete my world of IMSA. We'll do a question or two from fun and say farewell. You ready to go, my man? Oh, yeah. Ready for a little pre-Daytona cameo, Marshall. Woohoo! So uh, let's start off with questions. Uh, a question from Bannon Bird, which says, Has IMSA considered a version of GTLM AM to boost car counts? Is there much of a cost difference between running one of those compared to an LMP2? We've got a lot of uh, questions about uh, cost and that sort of subject this week. No consideration that I know of, and yes, those vehicles are wickedly expensive and not readily available uh in many instances so would say that this is a non-starter and if we're talking about cutting costs this would be cutting costs and piling them on top to make a big old slice of costs so yeah um this would be going in the opposite direction unfortunately I, i remember actually from sebring last year when uh Ben Keating announced the Mon program of the Ford GT. I remember chatting to him about this specific thing, and he said there was a very, very brief interim discussion between a few people in the paddock and, and IMSA, and it didn't really go much further than that because of the cost. Um, and I haven't heard anything of that since. So the, the next question uh, is about GTD costs. and uh, It comes from Adrian Thompson. It says, Hi, Marshall. Uh, rewording this slightly from last week in an effort to get it answered this time, you've mentioned several times how full season costs for a competitive GTD entry have risen from a million to three million in just a few years. You've highlighted some of the cost drivers. Uh, help, uh, you've highlighted some of the cost drivers from for the massive increase in DPI, but can you shed some light on this massive increase for GTD? I understand the cars have got significantly quicker, but they're still homologated production-based standard GT3 cars. From some brief Googling, it looks like over the last five years, an average GT3 car has risen from about $400,000 to about $500,000. Even if you have added two to three team members and have shorter service service life for some critical components i just can't get my head around the 200 percent cost increase in a full year running cost can you shed some light on this please absolutely adrian couple areas here first we do have the you mentioned the average cost uh most gt3 cars are wickedly expensive we've seen a number of evo options come out Stephen, uh in recent years so whether that is buying a new car or updating it, there's significant cost in that being rolled in. You mentioned crew members. It's not so much a case of massively expanding the physical size of the crew. It's more often a case, Adrian, of the cost of competition, the ability to actually go out and succeed. That is where costs continue to rise. That's where teams continue to spend 
more and more and more on all of the virtual testing and off-track testing areas as we see in so many racing series that have drastically cut track testing. So what we get is big expenditures away from the track to make these cars faster and more competitive. If you think about technical support in just about every instance, I'm not saying that every team has opted into the manufacturer support package, but there are costs that often come along with that as well. Engineering support, technical support, and so on. If you think about the manufacturer's side, you think about not only do they sell the vehicles, but also the spares that come with them. There's significant costs with those as well. And we know that in GT3 uh, racing, definitely endurance racing, there tends to be a lot of parts and pieces that need replacing. Those continue to rise This is just something where, if you look at what it costs to be competitive, there's no area I can think of where the number has come down for GT3 vehicles. Uh, Everything just continues to go upwards. So there are cases, definitely cases, where more engineers, race engineers, strategist types are hired. Those are not insignificant salaries as well. So in some cases, not all. But in some cases, we do have team size growing a bit. I can tell you, if you look at the Meyer Shank team, for example, if we look at them a few years ago with them getting into uh, GTD, this is something where they really tried to do what they thought was going to be their best version of themselves, hired some really quality people, and so on and so forth. Over the years, even leading into this year, Adrian, 2020, they have hired new people, uh, some folks directly out of IndyCar. They already had IndyCar people on their team, but the quality and caliber of personnel that they have recruited and hired has gone up in a a manner that matches uh, their need to be more competitive. So you just start adding in. 100,000 here, 200,000 there, 300,000 here, uh, Evo kit there, a brand new chassis here, uh, $25,000 a day doing this aero testing, $17,000 a day doing this seven post shaker, and you're doing X amount of those uh, per day, uh, per season. Uh, you start adding all of these items up and it's not a surprise that this these budgets have really been subject to uh, the equivalent of nuclear arms escalation. So it is hard to fathom. That's the crazy part. And really, if we step back just a little bit to close on this, was just thinking about, Stephen, this would have been before your time coming to Daytona, but traditionally we'd walk in forever from wherever we were parked, coming into the paddock, on the GT side of the paddock, in the first five stalls, maybe six, would all be Kevin Buckler's TRG entries, his Porsches. And for so, so long, before the GT3 formula came in, these were effectively Porsche 911 Cup cars. And very good cars, not very expensive cars. 
So a guy like Kevin Buckler could indeed go and buy many of those, plus have his customers buy some of them. And field five, six, <laughs> he would have had 10, I'm sure, if they would have let him. Uh, just car after car, crazy amounts. Something we would never fathom today. Why? The vehicle itself, relatively inexpensive to purchase and maintain and run, and therefore, you could stack the car with paying pro-am level gentleman, gentlewoman type drivers. Would not cost a prohibitive amount by any means. And if anything, there were struggles to actually meet the demand. Because if you bring the price down with the car, starting with the car and everything else related to it, it was a relatively simplistic vehicle, as were many of its, you know, rival models. It's a pretty simple thing, man, when that's the choice you make. And if we're just talking sheer numbers, sure, the numbers went way the heck up. I don't know how many people remember those battles as being epic and amazing like we do today with fewer cars and costs being higher. So there's another angle in here, obviously, Adrian, of what do folks want? What what do folks hold as the most prized thing? Is it volume? maximum numbers of vehicles but maybe the cars aren't that exciting and who knows if uh the quality of the racing is going to be great or tougher times higher costs fewer cars but by and large some pretty awesome and amazing competition like we expect to see here in the gtd race at the rolex so i'm a bit torn on this i'd rather see quality but not to the point to where we lose teams year after year because they just cannot sustain the costs. So definitely something for IMSA to think about here because I would say at the rate they're going, uh, this GT Daytona class might not be overly populated in a few years' time if they don't take a step back and really ask what should this class be and what should the costs be. Mm, I tend to agree with you there, Marshall. And we've got... Uh, another question, which comes from a different angle when it comes to cost, and this is from Joshua Ponce. He says, okay, I get that the cost of sports car racing is increasing and causing all kinds of shifts with teams trying to find every penny possible to find these programs. I know that you've mentioned before ideas like cutting races off the schedule and so on would have pretty much an instant saving on the teams to run these programs and would keep the racing alive. I've always thought that by having a title sponsor like WeatherTech, in IMSA's case, that some sort of money would uh, be split amongst the teams. But I was wondering if possible or whether it would help IMSA if we could get a secondary title sponsor or something like what NASCAR is doing by having premier partners as their title sponsor. Then maybe we, the fans, and teams uh, can compete in the series that com- teams that compete in the series can keep the same amount of races i guess it's like montoya would say it is what it is would love to see that happen josh i know imsa is working hard to try and find additional sponsors as you mentioned that nascar style premier sponsors where they have a rotating cast of of big name sponsors I don't know if WeatherTech and the McNeil family would be open to not having their name atop the series, since I believe that's what they paid the right to ha- for the, the right to have. There's definitely a need here, though, for more money to come in. Where there's definitely a split here to recognize, Josh, 
is we have two separate financial, quote, concerns going on. Teams in every class, except for LMP2, which has had its calendar slashed as an effort to revive the class, bring the cost down, uh, therefore stoke more interest, which has worked. In the other three classes, pretty much every level, even the manufacturers, will tell you, you know, in DPI, they'd love to spend less. So we have a case where the costs of racing are just getting to be a little bit too much for everyone's comfort from the biggest <laughs> entrance to the smallest. Bless you, Stephen. Um, we have a secondary issue, which your suggestion here addresses, and that would be bringing in more money to help IMSA through other sponsors. IMSA itself is under the greatest financial crunch it has ever known. Ever. <laughs> I do mean ever, not just when it was restarted in 2014. It's never faced the kind of budget slashes uh, it has been handed by its owners at NASCAR. We know that IMSA's business model is one where it relies on the paddock for funding. And I don't mean Magnus Racing writing a check, uh, which is going to help keep IMSA alive. I mean all the manufacturers pay in a significant amount of money to make them go to motor racing circuits to be on television and otherwise. There's almost nothing left in the paddock to spend. So really, IMSA needs to go and find more sponsors of their own to help create the budget that they need to survive and operate. If there was some magical thing where there was a a windfall of money where they had more than they needed and they could pass some of that down to the teams, I'd love that idea. I just do not think that scenario exists where some sponsor or sponsors are going to generate so much that there is something to filter down, at least right now. I do believe, though, this is going to need to be a consideration. Uh, We'll just close here quickly, Josh, on the idea. We've had an interesting thing happen in IndyCar recently with Roger Penske purchasing the series itself in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. IndyCar... 15-ish years ago, created something called the Leader Circle program. And this is prize money related. Just conceptually, it might be something uh, IMSA needs to think about, Stephen, where they were once paying out significant prize money and had a dynamic you would expect. The best teams finished up front pretty much everywhere, got the lion's share of prize money. The rest of the teams who weren't part of the Penske, Andretti, Ganassi triumvirate of winning everything said, hey, we're small or medium-sized compared to them. We don't have the legacy. We don't have the the staff. We don't have the money to really break into that pack, therefore to earn big amounts of prize money. We need to socialize this. And so they did. And so what happened was this leader circle program started and IndyCar said, all right, we are going to take the vast majority of the prize money we would have paid out to you from race to race, put it in one big pool and slice it up evenly. And if you commit 
sign actual agreement to compete in every single race, become a full-time entrant, you will get, just call it round numbers, $1 million per year from a leader circle contract for your entry. If you've got two entries, then you get a million dollars per, so it's $2 million coming in. You commit to us, we will take that money that realistically you, the majority of you would have gotten a barely a taste of in terms of prize money and where you would finish in those races, and we're just going to make it even. So I think they still pay out some nominal amount, $30,000 to win or whatever it is, but what this has done is help the teams, not so much the big teams, but the majority that comprise the rest of the field, know that, okay, well, here is, call it a financial assistance package from the series. If it costs us 5 to $6 million a year to compete, which is what it is right now, uh, we have a situation where you start off with $1 million in the bank, and then you have to go and find the rest of the budget. Obviously, could this be something for IMSA to try and consider how to do? They don't have the money to do it now, but is this something that they might need to think about so that from GTD to DPI, the the independent team owners, not the factories, I would say, uh, since we don't really have manufacturer-based racing in IndyCar, could this be something for them to consider to offset costs? Absolutely. Uh, there there might be some interesting conversations, Josh, to be had between IndyCar and IMSA to see if there's a model they might come up with here that helps the team owners who are struggling and not sure if they will be able to do a full season next year, the year after. I'm hearing the full season count is going to be pretty darn close to what the Rolex 24 entry looks like, which is good, but obviously could be better. But this is something that we're going to have to think about because while things might not be crashing down today, there's a genuine fear among a lot of team owners that we're not on something that's super sustainable as we get into this new, a couple of years into this new decade. Okay, so next we've got a question about Cadillac from Jean Chauvet. He says, Cadillac is going for another identity change to become SUV only. Is there any word on the future of its DPI program? Does it have a defined end date? Uh, no and no. I would say that what we have with their road car models right now, I never really look at these things in perpetuity type mindset, Jean. Um, would say that we don't know what they might have in terms of sedans, performance something or other coming so that performing with dpis wouldn't necessarily conflict against their market shift on road cars have heard nothing nothing about an end date for their dpi effort as well the only thing to keep track of this current formula ends the end of the 2021 season So we're going to need a commitment from them if they're going to stay and play in DPI 2.0. And I keep hearing that that sounds like a fairly positive response that might be forthcoming from them on the subject. Next up, we've got uh, Joe Izzo. He says, 
because of the the Q and A was was shortened on last week's show. He'll try again with his question. He says, "Is there any love for Ernie Francis Jr. considering his, his successes in Trans Am and being only twenty one years old?" Well, of course, there's love. Uh, how could we not love Ernie Francis Jr.? I think he's got tons of talent. I think anybody who's seen the kid race would say he's got tons of talent. One negative, though, that talent has been demonstrated in my beloved Trans Am series, which is just not seen by the other series for the most part. And so it's just a case of a name that does not jump out as a known one among IMSA team owners to consider uh, as someone that they need to bring into their GTD, GTLM, or prototype program. So, yeah, kids definitely among the most intriguing young talents. Just hoping that, I'm not sure what the mechanism is, Joe, but I'd say he would be a wise, wise guy if he is doing his best to find ways to get his face in front of team owners and IMSA. Because right now I think there is definitely a bit of a knowledge gap of who, what, where. So that's the thing he needs to fix. His talent will do the rest, provided he can make that opportunity happen. I've never seen the Trans Am race, and I think I've mentioned that a couple of times on the show before, and we've discussed it. What's the level like in terms of the driver ability at the top of it? I know, obviously, Chris Chris Dyson is a talented man behind the wheel, and I know he's up front in that, but what's what's the grid like in terms of talent, up top it, to bottom? Too thin. I mean, there's definite talent there, uh, but it's not as deep as it needs to be, no question there. I mean, the the grids aren't as deep as they need to be, the team talent isn't as deep as it needs to be, but this kid has truly stood out whenever he has had real talent to face and distinguished himself. So that makes me confident, Stephen, that given an opportunity in something IMSA-related, he would impress. Mm. Next up is uh, Dustin D. Cheesy. It says, if IMSA dared to be different with it, with their top class, could we see a situation similar to now where they have far more manufacturers involved than the WEC? Well, I, I don't know exactly what you mean, Dustin, because dared to be different could mean many things. Uh, cars run around out there without bodywork. Uh, mechanics all have to work in them naked. Who knows? Or maybe that's just my mind kind of faltering <laughs> here a little bit. Uh, they are already doing something different. It's the only sports car series in the world to do DPI. So I don't really know how to answer this because they do something different. The WEC doesn't have it. SRO doesn't have it. Nobody else has it. So maybe if you had something particular in mind, Dustin, send this back in. Give me a little bit more direction because I'm not totally sure how to answer this. John Richter says, MPM asking again, the Rolex 24 is uh, disappointing in terms of its number of entries. Will most of them still be around for Sebring? I think you mentioned, didn't you, that uh, just briefly that we're expecting the car count to continue after Rolex to be something roughly similar to what we've got. He says, well, what's happened to, to Compass Racing and McLaren's North American endurance ambitions? Great question, and I don't know, 
So I need to reach out to Carl Thompson and find out. Um, I don't know if they're, they're plan- not, planning on just... They're not on the GT4 list, are they? Am I, is that correct? Either. I'd be lying if I said I really pay close attention to anything other than the WeatherTech Championship uh, at Daytona. Um, I don't know, but I do need to reach out to Carl and find out because uh, their entry was pretty darn awesome last year, even in an abbreviated sense. Um, yeah, and back to the, the first question, John. No, I don't have a number to put in front of you to say X amount will be the full season, but I just I keep hearing what the number that will go racing at the Rolex, which we believe will be 38 after we have taken one of the two Pier 1 Matheson LMP2 Areca 07s off the entry, and we keep expecting the Rick Ware Racing Riley Multimatic Mark 30 to not turn up due to its tub being thoroughly binned in a crash during the roar. Um, that's 38 number. We'll have to see what it ends up being full season. But I it, again, I keep hearing the the full-timers might not be too far off that number. Mm. Especially well, we, when you look at the, the two premier classes with DPI and GTLab, you look at those lists, uh, there aren't many that you look at and think, oh, I don't know if they're going to see out the season. It looks pretty solid and stable in those classes. GTD, you never really know, but the quality that's there and the teams that seem to have that ambition seem to you know, just all be present, don't they? Absolutely. So, which is quite exciting because we have had years, haven't we, where it's dropped off hugely in the space of two races. Very much so. Superman Secondborn is next up. He says, what really killed off the GTP series? Well, I it, that implies the really part implies that there's some other answer that hasn't been told. Um, costs and financial crisis. So we had the GTP series run completely amok financially with technology, <laughs> technology just wild. We had a case where I think the uh, Nissan Performance Technical Incorporated NPTI, they got to a point with their base in Southern California, Stephen, where they had just over 200 employees. And while there was a little bit of support for other sports car stuff, it was by and large over 200 people supporting a two-car IMSA GTP program. <laughs> I mean, Believable. Uh, that's Formula One grade. That would have been as much, if not more, than half of the Formula One field back in the early 1990s. So just the amount of money being spent, everything custom, every single thing bespoke, machined and made and laid and whatever to the highest possible level, crazy toyota similar thing uh with all american racers but uh, what we would call trd uh today just a case where the cost were just the the nuclear x uh amplification just got to a place that was unsustainable if we think about 1992 in particular it's kind of the all-time grudge match if i look across at the world sports prototype championship at that same time we had Peugeot right with their 
905 Evo Beast 2, whatever the heck it was called. It had rivals, but it didn't have rivals, really. It was so clearly ahead of everything else that it just, you know, dominated in Europe. Here we did actually have two, well, a three-way Titanic battle. It's something that the WSPC, frankly, didn't. And that was All-American Racers with their Eagle Mark III, just the most dominant GTP car ever. Um, Insane. We had Nissan with their NPT 90-91. And then we also had the TWR Jaguar team bringing over the (laughs) XJR 14 from Europe, which had just decimated everything um, in 1991. So this is the 92 season. So we have TWR bringing its Formula 1 engine, Formula 1-designed XJR 14 penned by the amazing Ross Braun going head-to-head with... Toyota and Nissan. The Nissan was proving to look a little bit old compared to these two cars back then, but the costs involved just shot through the roof. And so when you have hundreds of employees working on prototype programs uh, for a domestic series, not an international one, (laughs) just straight up North America only, A, that's insane. B, we also had a bit of a global recession hit as well. The Japanese economy in particular took a massive hit. And next thing you know, NPTI no longer exists. And hundreds of employees are laid off. Uh, Toyota pulls out. TWR and Jaguar was gone at the end of 92. The GTP series collapsed after 93. In came the World Sports, WSC World Sports Car Formula, which was just terrible. But it was the natural reaction. Cost got so high, everything collapsed. So what do you do? You follow it with a bargain basement formula. Thankfully, the good folks at Riley and Scott came up with a pretty cool car. Thankfully, Ferrari said, well, we're still going to spend a lot of money and do this 333. So there were some definite positives that stood out from the, the backlash of what happened with GTP crashing. But it was just unchecked. Un, unsane, insane costs, and then economy going soft as well. That's a, frankly, it's not too different from what happened at the end of 2008 with uh, the economy hitting a big rough patch and Audi saying, okay, we're out from the American Le Mans series. And while, yeah, Porsche, their factory program concluded. With uh, Penske, and all of a sudden we come back in 2009, and there's some really cool Acura ARX 02As, I think. Their LMP1 car, the big tire front and rear vehicle, and not a whole... I love that car. Yeah. One of the worst performing cars ever, if you ever want to hear fun conversations. Ask Dario Franchitti about the car he hates most that he's ever driven, or run down the list. And yeah, uh, that car stands out as just an epic, not good. Um, but nonetheless, all of a sudden, 2009, if we're just talking the big tier top level prototypes, there wasn't much. So, um, and it's not as if costs got truly insane uh, in the late 2000s with ALMS prototypes, but they were pretty heavy. One of those things where you hit a recession and it becomes a really easy decision for manufacturers to say, 
we're done playing here. Well, same thing happened uh, at the end of 92-93 in GTP. Is there the, the costs in the early 90s, were they in any way justifiable? I mean, did, did we ever get to a, a point where it was a relatively popular championship uh, and well-known domestically in the US? What? Which one is that? GTP. Well, how popular did it get in its peak? Oh, my God. You call yourself a sports car reporter and are asking that question. <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't in the U.S. at that time. I wasn't even born. So, just so I'm clear. So, therefore, you know nothing about the world before you were born. You've never done, uh, you don't know. Did you, Were you aware that this country you were born in has gone to war once or twice? Is that something? Wow, I know, I, know, I know that. I know that stuff. I know. Okay, I just I've I've never studied the attendance figures of IMSA GTP. Yes, it was very popular. It rivaled IndyCar at times as the most popular form of racing in the United States. Well, that's pretty impressive. It is. You should <laughs> learn. I, I do need to. It's something. It's a, it's a it's a period of motorsport history. Uh, that is, you know, just completely slipped my mind. I've never really read a book on it, and I need to. Um, but anyway, let's move on to Michael Metropolis, who says, to help boost the disappointing car count for the Rolex 24, could IMSA ever add GT4 cars just for the Rolex, perhaps having it count towards the Pilot Challenge Championship? Could they? Yes. Would they and should they? Absolutely not. Uh, they need to fix the series then fix the costs to play and the attractiveness first. Throwing out cars that are considerably slower than everything else just to fill the grid, that sounds like a lot of cars are going to get destroyed, uh, if you ask me, Michael. So I love the idea of how can we help and get the car count up, but throwing out an oddball class that is just going to be dwarfed in speed, by the prototypes and even the GT cars. Plus, admittedly, if we're thinking the the actual existing GT4 entrants compared to WeatherTech Championship teams getting a hold of GT, GT4 cars to run to fill the grid, we're talking about <clears throat> uh, MPC entrants where while there will be a high-quality pro or two in that GT4 team, there are some drivers on the pro-am level who I really would not want to introduce to endurance racing at the Rolex 24. So love the idea. I just would rather IMSA run with fewer cars and solve some of its problems than do something here that's going to ask some of the, uh, the pro-am drivers who really are kind of GT4 level only in terms of skill at this point to try and figure out getting overtaken by a four car DPI battle at 3 a.m. <laughs> and uh, knowing how to handle that situation. Mm. And Pilot Challenge is doing so well. I mean, it's a great grid. Do you want to up rock the boat with that, with the cost of having a having the 24 hour race at the start of the season? I mean, there we're talking about costs again, but that would be crazy wouldn't it for a gt4 team yeah i wouldn't want to risk tanking uh the G- the gt4 class there by doing this as well alex ike miller says what driver team or car are you most excited about for the rolex 24 which are you least excited about 
I'm going to throw that at you, Stephen, uh, since this is going to be your, what, third Rolex 24, is it? Ooh. Uh, yes, it is my third, yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. I, it's hard to look past the Corvette. Uh, it's, it's the only car on the grid that we've not seen, aside from the Porsche, which obviously hasn't raced in IMSA before, but I've seen it in the WC. I'm looking forward to seeing what, what the CIR is like in the flesh, looks, sounds-wise, you know, how good is that car straight away? It's hard to look past that. Um, Got to say, Mazda as well, that's obviously another, I guess it's almost a cliche, but want to see how well they can do at the Rolex 24 this year. As we've seen, obviously, the disappointments in, in recent years, and I don't think they need they or any of the, the fans of, of IMSA would need to hear anything about that, but seeing how well they do... Um, do you know what? I'll go for a little bit of an oddball as my my the car I'm most excited about. The number 98 Aston, which we didn't see much of at the Raw because of Paul Dallalana's injury. They've got Andrew Watson in uh, to replace him. It's going to be on the grid. It it looks great in that livery, and it's the first race for the that Vantage in, in IMSA, isn't it? I think that could be a real contender if they if they get things right, Aston Martin Racing. So that, that's, that's for me, as a, as a car that I'm excited to track least excited about um that's a tough one um uh, gotta be anything one montoya drives right that guy's so oh, boring yeah, yeah it'll be boring Slow. that would be very boring um ooh. it's uh, for me if i had to choose and i, I almost hate answering these sort of questions because you almost feel like it's unfair to the people you're mentioning but uh the bmw program has never really excited me you know the m8 doesn't really excited we did briefly when it was new and it was flashy not particularly excited about that and i guess there's a couple of cars in p2 that you know i see p2 cars so often i can't say i'm excited to see that p2 battle although i am very pleased to see that the p2 class and nims has picked up have you got anything to throw out there i am quite interested to see how the wayne taylor racing outfit performs knowing they're the defending race winners in dpi be interested to see, I guess, I don't know if excited is the word, but this will be the first time that they have gone racing in forever without a Taylor son in the car. So this will be mm-hmm. their first race point. as a truly, I guess you could almost say just independent team, obviously owned by Wayne, but I'd say it's no longer a quote family team this is just a straight-up racing program which it was you know back in the day before ricky and jordan were of age to uh, compete but I look forward to seeing how they do knowing that they have scott dixon in the car in particular uh, they've already mentioned how massive of an influence he's been surprisingly um the overall entry he's quite good isn't he scott dixon potential uh, heard, i don't want to go too far good. i don't want to go too far the entry, I'm probably looking forward to seeing how it goes the most, just because the assembly of personalities and talent is silly, is the number 12 Aim Vassar Sullivan Lexus. Uh, mm. Frankie Montecalvo is there. Frankie's a lot of fun. It's the next three that really stand out to me. The Giz, Shane Van Gisbergen, A.A. Ron, Aaron Tielitz, and Townsend Bell. And that just sounds like a massive party. And it's the pit you're going to want to be in the most, I think, during the race, because it's just a collection of 
very dissimilar but kind of haywire personalities, I think that's going to be fun. Maybe I'm, I'm also wondering, from a potential excitement standpoint, the gear racing with GRT Grasser. I like the... Okay, GRT Grasser. It's Grasser Racing Team. GRT. But then you throw in the Grasser name again at the end. Grasser Racing Team Grasser. Uh, Again, I haven't quite figured out the GRT Grasser naming convention here, but knowing how Gert Grasser has been rather phenomenal as a team at the Rolex 24 the last couple of years, if we assume that they will be in a similar spec of competitiveness. I think the uh, all-female entry there, the number 19, could be in with a shot, not only at at the podium, but but potentially a win as well. That could be pretty darn cool for the series. So a couple of those things come to mind here. Alex, you, as a rabid sports car fan, drop us a note. Send us something, reply, whatever. Let us know who you're looking forward to as well. And uh, be interesting to hear. Mm. Dean Ackerman says, on one of the IMSA pages I follow, there was a fan that posted extended weather forecast where 24 to 26 degrees were the predicted low temperatures for qualifying on the race days. Those forecasts have now thankfully warmed up quite substantially. However, MP and Graham... What is the coldest Rolex 24 that you can recall covering? Has ice or snow ever halted an, an IMSA race? Stay dry as Rolex, as the January the 25th still looks to be raining. Yeah, and I'm looking at the forecast right now, and cloudy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sunny on Sunday. Uh, with, That's nice. Yeah, weather with temp- highs ranging between 62 Fahrenheit and 71, so... That actually sounds fairly nice. Um, boy, I mean, what? A couple of years ago at Sebring, granted, I know we're talking Daytona, but the crazy cars are sliding off everywhere. Uh, 12 hours of Sebring from, what was that, three years ago, two, three, maybe four years ago, whatever it was. Uh, that really stands out as fairly insane. I do recall a roar test from what, maybe 2010, 11, where it snowed. And, uh, again, not a race session, I understand that. Uh, But that was a (laughs) snow at Daytona. What? Um, Yeah, remember that halting uh, the proceedings. And then, obviously, we have the annual will there be a red flag due to fog at Daytona thing to consider. So, I don't know, man. Um one of the great rain deluges I can recall, and it's totally off topic here, was the 1996 Indy Lights race at the Detroit Grand Prix in Belle Isle. And I remember being on grid there, and it just, the skies exploded, Stephen. And normally, mm-hmm. you would have the Indy Lights, which is the warm-up act for IndyCar, that would go before the IndyCar race. Well... The rain was so bad and so disruptive that they actually yanked the Indy Lights race and said, no, (laughs) we don't have time 
to try and recover the track after the rain has stopped and get it all swept and swept out and whatever and hold your race and do the IndyCar race on time for TV. So, uh, come back in about five hours. <laughs> That's what we did. Uh, the rain was so bad. Uh, they actually had to throw our race off the uh, schedule, uh, and basically say, we're going to get to you when we can. So just remember us sitting around true. I mean, was, we got to watch the IndyCar race. That was cool. Uh, and I remember dragging my camera out and snapping some shots cause there was truly nothing else to do, but I've never been more wet in my life. Uh, it's just, it was crazy how much rain fell. And it actually just got funny at some point because I think one of our crew chiefs, he was soaked from head to toe. And we were all soaked, but, you know, none of us were prepared for it. I don't think anybody really expected this explosion to happen. And so he's like wringing out his shirt over my head, and I couldn't even feel it because it was raining so hard. It, it wasn't like he was doing something bad, or, and that was the whole point. Like, I can truly just pour buckets of water on you. You wouldn't even notice uh, because it's just raining that hard on its own. So... Don't have any great sports car Rolex 24 ones for you, Dean, but there you go. Ed Horace says, if IMSA replaced GTE-based GTLM with an all-pro GT3-based formula, would the car count go up or down? Up. Job done. Next question. Yeah. Lake Effect Racing says, what class in this year's Daytona 24 do you think is going to be most exciting? Do you foresee any surprise winners? This is a slight uh, variation on the question we've just had, isn't it? What about you, Stephen? Let me throw back to you. Any, you have a feel there's going to be a, a, either a shock win in one of the categories, or is there a class that you think is going to be the one you have to watch? <sighs> hmm. It's hard to look past dpi this year on the basis that i, f- I feel like the the acura and the master are both mature chassis now and i think they're both capable um of staying reliable for most of if not the entire race and if they can take the fight to the cadillacs all the way through and we've got three manufacturers you know on par with each other battling for the win that would be amazing because it's, it's not that often you see it is it in big endurance races um having three big full factory efforts going at it but GTD just is always awesome at, at Rolex. It, it really is. I mean, it, it usually seems to come down to, you know, the last couple of hours, doesn't it? Whether we've had loads of wave rounds and uh, stoppages or whether it's run green like it did a couple of years ago. GTD always seems to throw up something. Um, so it's between one of those two. But I've, I've got to say DPI. I'm a prototype guy. I always have been. So that's what I'm going to go for. Yeah, one just a little addition there on the dpi front i do think that's going to be phenomenal worth noting that with the reduction in car count and i guess variety in manufacturers and so on we have all factory teams and jdc miller motorsports now can we argue is wayne taylor racing a factory team uh, totally no but come on it's you know they're part of the tip of cadillac spear uh the action express wheeling engineering entry same case there the jdc team that's that's a true customer effort not as if cadillac doesn't help with technical support and all that kind of stuff but uh, there's just one team that is still there in their second year of running in dpi 
second year and running in a manufacturer top tier level class. And this is no disrespect. I mean, there again, there's nothing negative being said here. They're not quite there yet. Uh, having Joel Barbosa, Christian Fittipaldi on, on the team side, Bourdais, Loic Duvall, some of these new influences, it's going to help massively. It's not going to show at Daytona, though. That's going to be something where throughout the year they get better, learn different ways of doing things and practices, and Joao saying, okay, we need to, the way you've been doing this, we need to do it that way now because that's what I've learned over the years is the best way. And Bourdais saying, no, 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 we're not doing it like that. We're doing it like this. Those things are going to take a year at least. So they're going to be a strong, much stronger presence in future Rolex 24s. But really, uh, what I'm trying to get at here is I think we're going to see a tight, concerted effort of two Acura Team Penske cars going up against two Cadillacs, one at Wayne Taylor, one at Action Express, and two Mazdas. So I know that's a somewhat concise six-car DPI battle, knowing that there's eight entered. I don't think that's a bad thing, though. Um, I I think it's just going to be really darn hardcore on the racing front there. The one that I'm looking forward to, maybe because I'm weird, is I'm looking forward to P2. Right, I mean, that there's some pretty stellar names on some of these lineups. You know, Ryan Deal, Nicholas Lapierre, Nick Manassian. Uh, you move on down, uh, Gabriel Aubrey, obviously rather quick. Uh, Simon Trummer doing P2 now after being with uh, in the DPI last year. Uh, ben Hanley, obviously Colin Brown, Harrison Newey. I think that's going to be quite fun. To watch as well mm, i think con- consistency is going to be the thing that's a little bit off right and there's a lot of names a lot of folks that are going to be doing p2 for the first time uh or at least in the rolex 24 construct so you know from one driver first driver to the last will we see zero fluctuation in lap time steven no but frankly that's kind of what makes things fun right uh dl oh, yeah. goes out and puts in a monster double stint triple stint whatever hands off to whomever and they lost a bit of time now the next one up if it's one of the uh you know the silvers or golds more on the gold front possibly the platinum front those are going to be the ones that have to claw back a lot of time that isn't something we see so much these days so that is where I think it's going to be quite fun uh, in just watching the gains and losses and recovery efforts. And if you want to win, there's probably not going to be a lot of cruising in just ticking off lap times. There are going to be stints, depending on how much was lost, where some driver, Steve, and I expect to have to do some miraculous things behind the wheel to catch back up. So could be fun. Mm-hmm. Joe Robert Sudduff says, Marshall and Graham slash Stephen, what is your, your favorite Daytona 24-hour memory? Well, we already know you weren't aware that IMSA and the GTP cars were there. Uh, oh, so, no, no, I knew they were there. Whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, Oh, you whoa, did? Whoa. Oh, that's interesting. No, I, I, know, I, I know IMSA GTP exists. I know the cars. I know the looks of them. I've seen, you know, footage. But my question was merely how popular did it get? Uh-huh. Whether, like, you know... 
was was the the incredible all American races Toyota a household you know car that most people would know in, in the US or was it loads of factories pouring money into something that didn't have an appeal outside of hardcore motorsport guys? That was my question. I, uh, I know it existed. Okay. I wasn't there. I was minus two years old. Come on. It's give okay. Us a break. It's a look as someone who spent a lot of his life trying to learn about racing history so that I know more than just what happened while I've been alive. Just saying a little egotistical there, pal. Um, <laughs> give us one of your favorite Rolex 24 Daytona 24 memories, Stephen. Ooh, uh, there's two that spring to mind. The first one and the, uh, is when we were, uh, it would have been the raw actually, uh, seeing the, the master break the record, the lap record and speaking to John Doonan afterwards, after that happened was amazing. I absolutely loved that. Uh, I thought that was really cool. And the footage of that, that, that I think you, rec- did you record? I certainly remember it being on racers YouTube channel. Yeah. The onboard of that lap was amazing. Um, but for me, it's actually it involves you, uh, my favorite oh, relic memory. Yeah, I know. Um, you, the first year I went, when you took me up to the top of the grandstand for the start of the race, mm. unbelievable. We don't see as members of the press who don't do photography that much in terms of trackside action when you're working on it week in week out. So it was, it's just always cool to get you know an hour or two during a weekend like that to actually see the cars on track properly. And I'd never seen anything like it because I'd never been to Daytona before. I'd, I've been to a couple of ovals, but nothing of that scale. And to stand at the top of that grandstand for the start of the race and see the cars fly um, fly through the start. And the best thing about it, for anyone who's not done it, is when you can see an endurance race of multi-class, or multi-class field and see the entire circuit all at once, you can see how the classes split up you know, at the start of the race before everything gets mixed up. And that gives you a true sense of just how different the speeds are. And that's one of the things I really enjoy. First hour of the race, seeing how quickly the front runners catch the, the GTD runners. And you can see the whole circuit. It's awesome. So I can't thank you enough for doing that. And you've done that with, with me twice. And it's it's genuinely some of the coolest things I've ever done in my, my life. No. Oh, well, I mean, my pleasure, man. At least I can do I try and do that with uh... – as many friends as I can. We haven't had that uh, vantage point. Unfortunately, I won't be able to do it this year, but now you at least know where to go. Um, I, I'd just say maybe Jaguar winning on their TWR Jaguar winning on their GTP debut in 1988. That was, that was a wow moment. That was a big shot knowing that so many teams so many GTP teams were not expecting these uh, marauders from the UK to come in and win our biggest race in their very first race. That was very, very special. Um, I would say on the, the hashtag me personally level, just something less about the racing and more on a, a personal reflection, probably be last year, the event that we put on at uh, the request of Mazda in their vendor area with a bunch of their drivers and Justin Bell and Scott Atherton and Dunan you mentioned, and it was just a blast. We had a great turnout. I don't know, 100, 150 people, whatever it was. It was a lot of people. It was really cold, but we just had a blast. And those are the things that I'm finding, Stephen, as I get older, 
I've been doing this for most of my life. And that's another way of saying there's not a lot of newness to this after a while. I still find tons of joy in it, but it right now I can close my eyes and give you every step of landing at the airport in Orlando, Florida to <laughs> getting to the track, picking up credential, you know, the rental car and what I do in the cart that I get, which elevator I take down, which exit door I use on the way to the rental car, how long it takes to go from the rental car to getting checked out from the rental car, how long it takes for uh, to get out from under the parking structure for the GPS, for the phone to connect with GPS to uh, give me a prediction on how long it's going to take to get there based on traffic and otherwise, yada, yada, right? I'm going to run you through all these things with my eyes closed because I've done it. Met all Many of us have done these things so many times. There's a bit of a rinse, wash, repeat feel to it. So it's the new things that emerge, like doing the live weekend sports car shows that are just awesome. I love it because it's just this show publicly with some, as we find, folks who send in questions are there in the crowd and introduce themselves like, oh, hey, you're so-and-so. That's great. So that last year was really a highlight for me. I would say among the things I'm sad about not being able to go to this year's race is not being able to do another one because Mazda asked us to do it in 2020 the moment we finished the one we did in 2019. So I'd say that's just a, a good hashtag me personally memory. And maybe since you and I both have American football conference finals to watch here to see who's going to play in the Super Bowl. Why don't we uh, fast forward a little bit and get to the last couple of IMSA questions? Then I know we have a couple of others to close the show and say goodbye. Mm. Yeah, so we'll go on to Ross Porter's question. Is Marshall, there's a, a sort of comment question hybrid here. I've been a racing fan my entire life. I've always favored open world classes. Recently, I started listening to the weekend sports cars after being a diehard weekend IndyCar fan for the past year. It's helped rejuvenate my passion for sports car racing and the unique and exciting innovation involved that most spec series are now void of. It brings back fond memories of growing up watching the likes of Pruitt, Lally, watching you, Pruitt, Lally, Angelelli, battling out in the mid-2000s during my youth. I would like uh, your opinion on what track is a must-see for my first IMSA event. P.S. Travel is not an issue. I'm a regional airline mechanic and have flight benefits through most airlines. Unfortunately, your favorite airline, Southwest, is not offered in my benefit package, by the way. Keep putting out amazing products every week. Best wishes of health to you and the missus. Oh, thank you, Ross. That one's easy. That one is super easy. You will be hopping on a plane to Miliwake. You'll be heading to Wisconsin to take the hour-ish drive north to Road America, Elkhart Lake. Nothing like it. It's the most American motor racing weekend I can think of for both IndyCar and IMSA. Uh, For IMSAs, like IndyCars, it's just full of love and great campers and great food. You can walk everywhere, see everything. In some areas, the speeds are insane. In others, it's tight and technical. You can see it all. It's in a, like you can see everything. You can get everywhere. It's in a beautiful 
part of the country. The food and beverage is amazing. The people are amazing. The folks that come to Road America really, you know, it's it's not the kind of grumpy, leave me alone, I'm here on my own, I want to do this by myself. Tends to be a really good communal feeling there, Ross, that you would enjoy. If you happen to like photography, if you have a camera, it's a great place to go. It's You come away there feeling like you're an amazing photographer, even if you aren't. Trust me, I know. Uh, because the scenery is great. I mean, it's hard to take a bad photo. Just everything about it. Uh, I, again, on the topic of I've done this for a long time and sometimes it doesn't feel overly fresh. Every year when the clock rolls over to that new year, January 1st, I can't wait because I know I'm going to Road America at least twice. And yeah, so that would be the one, my man. Uh, I do not think you will be disappointed there are some others. Sebring, obviously, is totally insane. Uh, it's more of a party than a race uh, for many folks. It's also brutally congested. Getting around isn't always the easiest thing. So, again, depending on what you're looking for, if it's a weekend away and you don't want to remember half of it, well, Sebring would be the one. But if you want to just truly enjoy all the best asset uh, aspects of motor racing with sports cars, with people who really love it just as much as you, you would have a hard time doing better than Elkhart Lake. Mm, certainly on my bucket list, and I love Wisconsin. It's my favorite state. <clears throat> shall we move on to Generala? We shall. Absolutely. Let's go. Actually, let's go to James Counters, if you don't mind, real quick, to close IMSA. Yeah, of course. Uh, he says, you spoke previously about Lexus slash Toyota and DPI. If we end up with a car-car DPI 2.0 global reg situation, do you foresee Toyota entering the Supra car-car in a full-season IMSA campaign? Strikes it a bigger question, James, and I have this coming in a commentary analysis, what I think needs to happen piece in the next day or two and that is if we do have convergence what will that convergence look like and will that be hypercar and dpi 2.0 blended together or will one formula be chosen as the winner slash survivor interesting things to consider here really we know that Toyota has their hypercar, as you've written about, Stephen. In development, we'll be testing here in the next couple, you know, we'll be doing this, that, and the other uh, as testing and on-track benchmarking and so on. All these things ramping up towards a debut later in the year. Know the car exists. Know it's going to race. Done deal. What could convergence look like a few years from now? Would that mean we have a Toyota hypercar competing in IMSA? Would it mean a Toyota hypercar just doing the WEC and possibly Lexus doing something here, maybe on the DPI 2.0 front? Could a convergence of regulations mean a single formula where a brand like Toyota has one car running in WEC under... Again, I'm, we would assume the Toyota name and truly just a badging exercise uh, with Lexus carrying 
uh, a car carrying Lexus branding, but the same car built to a single regulation that is globally adopted, but obviously we are still going to have two separate series. Um, great questions that we don't have answers for right now, James, but I will try and throw in, well, I will, because I've written most of it, I uh, will give you an inkling as to what I think must happen. So that should be out here shortly, Monday, Tuesday or so, on racer.com. Mm, looking forward to that. You shouldn't. It's not that good, but kind of you to say. <laughs> so, General, uh, what do you want to dive into? Do you want to dive into Adrian Thompson's comments? Uh, you know, there, why don't we take the one from Joe Van Galen, and then we'll... I'll do my best to address Adrian Thompson's real quick. Then I think we have a couple of quick funds, and then we say goodbye. Wonderful. Okay, so uh, this question is, yeah. So let's go for We'll for just Joe's lump question. this into says, fun, by the way. We'll just call it fun, even if it's in the okay. general category, because we already did general with Graham. Wonderful. So Joe's question is, I've listened to the Tony Perella Trans Am episode. Educate me, please. How would bringing big teams who can spend lots of money into Trans Am be good for the series? Wouldn't it eventually cause expenses to go up because competition suddenly jumped? I'm thinking of the Jeff Brown story about Tucker's rocket ship and the SCCA that angered half the field. The rules were that way because it wasn't expected that a high-end team would show up. So you get the idea. Uh, Yeah, great question, Joe. So Trans Am was for the absolute vast majority of its history a professional series fully professional series that also wasn't exclusive to manufacturers but was populated by and large by manufacturers lots of independent teams the rules were such where you could buy a car quite often from the factory team build your own the rules were Limited enough to where tube frame chassis was not going to have a big pro team say, oh, well, we're going to build one out of carbon, and that's how we're going to beat everybody because it's going to be stiffer and lighter, and it, rules prohibited such things. So it meant that because the rules, which allowed some pretty wild and amazing cars, but not through an explosion of technology, you had these big, fun, amazing things that were light and cartoonish and ridiculous in terms of speed. They weren't aerodynamic monsters, so there wasn't a ton of money needed there, so on and so forth. Well, the series collapsed, came back, and while it existed, it was found at SCCA club racing events. Really fell on hard times, has worked its way back let's say halfway to where it once was. Has some quality teams in it, but I would say if we're using sports car structure, it's at Asian Le Mans series level, knowing that it was once at WEC level. And while I really enjoy the series, for what it is now, I enjoy it because it's still here, not because it's reaching its former and full potential. 
So it could stay at that Asian Le Mans series level where you go, hell yeah, we love that. That's a you know cool little regional thing. Nobody knows about it, man. Again, no disrespect to the Asian Le Mans series, but nobody knows about it. Nobody talks about it by and large other than us here. It's just something that operates in a bit of a vacuum. Doesn't have the best teams. Doesn't have, you know, again, up and down. It's a pro-am series that isn't always as pro as it hopes it could be. That's where Trans Am sits right now, and it has been so much more for the vast majority of its history, and that vast majority was built by factory teams, serious teams, high-caliber teams, and drivers to match. That's what I want. That's what I'd like to see. That's the thing that I saw for the majority of its existence, of its existence, Joe. So the reason I'm not a huge follower of development series, other than maybe the top tier and open wheel, is it's still that kind of unformed thing. You're not seeing the best. I don't watch sports for pretty good. I want to watch sports because I'm watching the best do exceptional things. Right now, Trans Am is not that. Has a potential to get there, but it's not that. And without the best teams, without the best everything in it, it's not going to be that. So that's why I wanted to get back to what it once was. And the thing to know, it didn't collapse. It didn't fall apart because costs were too insane uh, the series it was aligned with was going away. And you know, it also fell out of favor a little bit. So you know, we had a, a case where there was oversaturation with sports car series. And Trans Am just didn't have enough in it to survive the time. Right now, I mean, World Challenge, the SRO Motorsports Group, still there. But that is really become, in a short amount of time, relatively anonymous something we don't see a whole lot of anymore. Uh, if we're talking about being attached to major racing series, major events, they're kind of off in the wilderness on their own. So it's a great opportunity for Trans Am to step up and really become a really strong alternative to IMSA. But it's not going to be that until we have manufacturers get back in, major teams get back in, you know, to bring it out, of, bring it out of its wilderness. So, Big teams, high-quality manufacturers, that doesn't all have to equate to crashing and plummeting and things going haywire and costs going insane. The rules are written in a way where there's no reason the current teams could not succeed if bigger teams came in and manufacturers came in. Would costs go up? Sure, go up a little bit. But the rules have been the thing that have kept Trans Am from ever really falling prey to giant boom and bust cycles on a regular basis, like most sports car racing series have. Uh, it plummeted once, and it wasn't necessarily, it really didn't have anything to do with the formula or costs. So, the way they do things, I would say, Joe, is the safeguard to the introduction of manufacturers and big teams again, causing a radical change and potential crash. And let's go to the item sent in by Adrian Thompson, which fills up almost an entire page. Um, and it's more of a dissertation um, talking about 
Trans Am, TA, TA2 being the best kept secrets. Called out the high power, relatively simple cars, one of the greatest assets. Um, in the same time, I've made references to both uh, IRL, old days, and the Daytona prototypes as rules that wouldn't work. Says he relatively agrees with my reasoning. I'm trying to paraphrase a lot of this because we don't have a half hour to read the whole thing. Um, so on and so forth. I'm just scrolling through here. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. And um, okay. And um, long story short, there's a question here about lower tech cars, lower costs and higher tech cars and higher costs and how maybe what I've said is at a bit of a conflict with itself of saying that low tech cars like we had in the IRL and Daytona prototype. Um, Let's see. Well, I fully understand and to a large extent agree with your reasoning. You have to admit uh, there appears to be a contradiction in these points. No, I don't have to admit anything. Uh, I wouldn't agree with you here, Adrian. Uh, yes, a way to boost grids, and this always kind of comes back to the central premise here, Stephen. So, hey, IMSA, going into the Rolex 24, it's going to have its smallest grid ever. That's a bad thing. So the costs are too high. Well, what's the remedy? Well, we've got to dumb down the cars, right? Cars are too expensive. So let's go back to a Daytona prototype-like formula. Tube frame, 500 horsepower, cheap to buy, cheap to run, cheap to everything. And remember when those cars came out, there was a million of them on the grid. Okay, point taken. Got to go back to cheaper GT cars. Mentioned that a little bit earlier. Not saying we had to, but the old Porsche Cup style cars, right? Uh, Definitely many steps below the current GT3 cars. Cheap to buy, cheap to run, cheap to everything. Boom, tons of them in the field. What do you want from your motor racing? I can tell you if we look back at the DP era in the GT era of all the most popular, most loved eras, the things that fans still talk about, those aren't the ones. Uh, of course, there are some exceptions, right? The Max Angelelli, the door-banging Daytona prototypes and all kinds of craziness there. And what was that, 2004, 2005? You know, again, some great little highlights, but nobody is asking for those cars to come back. No one, fans, nor teams, nor drivers are saying, bring those back. Because they addressed a, air quotes, problem, was a solution, wasn't one people cared for. (laughs) We have, Stephen, something starting here in America the weekend after the Super Bowl, the return of the XFL Football League. Mm. And it's going to be faster and better. Of course I'm going to watch the first one, just because it's going to be a sideshow. It's addressing something where you say, okay, they've tried this before. 
here's going to be an alternative and we're going to do things differently in the way they do it there. And it's all, it's all about money and this and that, and it's all just wrong. We're going to do things differently. Okay. And how are you going to do things differently? Well, by and large with players who were once in the NFL, but got cut or never made it to the NFL or are old NFL players. And they want to try and come back and do a little something. This was the second string guy, the third string guy. Here's a former star who hasn't been in the NFL, hasn't been in the league for a couple of years, but he's coming back and he's, you go, great. It's going to crash and burn because people don't want to watch things that are old or slow or less than the best. And that's what we had. So in terms of contradiction, no. What Trans Am is and was is something that provides massive excitement, high power. Just the car is faster than its design. It is not designed to handle all of that power and acceleration and fly around the corners with ease. It doesn't have enough aerodynamics. It doesn't have enough tire It doesn't have enough technology through traction control and other things. It's a great, great formula where it's not high cost. It's not high tech, but the rules are pushed to a place to where the vehicle itself is brutal to drive and amazing to watch. And the drivers climb out laughing because they can't believe that they get to drive them. That's something that never happened in the IRL. That's something that never happened with Daytona prototypes. Last couple of years, when they went to high downforce and high, you know, they radically altered the technology. Sure, power went up. It really became more of what it should have been. So, no, Adrian, and I apologize if I'm bristling a little bit here, but no, I don't have to admit there's a contradiction because there isn't. Uh, had the DP formula worked with 700, 750 horsepower, might have been pretty entertaining to watch cars would have been a bear to drive would have been faster than their potential design never the case irl as well dumbed down really simple cheap this all the things that i mentioned the most unloved era of indycar racing ever specifically because of the rules and the vehicle design same thing with daytona prototypes i know that there are some i feel bad for them who say they loved them I don't know what to tell you. There was another series called the American Le Mans series that truly pushed the boundaries of amazing. But anyways, um, maybe I'm at fault, Adrian, for not parsing out the nuance on this topic in the past. I feel like I've done it many times, but maybe you didn't catch those episodes. So if I didn't answer or fully address what you believe was a contradiction, uh, send in some, send in something again. Please just don't take uh, 456 words uh, because it's a little hard to fit into the show. All right, Stephen, let's get to the last couple of here in our fun. And we're going to go ahead and say that was in the fun category, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Say no more. Which one do you want to go for? Well, we would not have a show without Right Turn Lover. So Mm. we're going to start there in fun. He says, apologies for the silliness, but in my ears, Gustav Grimberger sounds like the name of a duckboard-born James Bond supervillain. 
Are there any driver names that have a similar cross-franchise connotation? <sighs> wow. Wow. That's a really good... And I had the same, I had the same thought here. Gustavs Grunbergus. That's... That's a definite baddie uh, in a James Bond movie. Who comes to mind? Wow! Do you not? Do you not think Will Power sounds like somebody from Dodgeball? Yeah, no that 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 is an athlete who has spent many hours of their life being televised on the Ocho, ESPN eight for sure. Um, I don't know if it's a baddie, but Simon Paginot. It just sounds a little too stereotypically French, so that one has jumped out to me as, as maybe a little bit too much. Um, Ricky Taylor definitely sounds like the kind of hillbilly bad guy who shows up in, in some sort of monster truck to do bad things. Uh, not totally sure if I'm spot on with that one. What else comes to mind, though, Stephen? What other names... And sports cars Ooh. jump out as like, okay, this person's potentially working more than one uh, employment angle. Do you feel like? Do you feel like uh, Matt Griffin is is a part time ECW wrestler? They're like you know the Griff. Yeah, call him the Griff. Yeah, I'd be a solid wrestler. No, that for sure. David Hennemeyer Hansen as well sounds like the professor, some sort of pipe smoking professor. Uh, you know, who, who's concocted the, the evil uh, liquid they're going to pour into the water system and, and murder, you know, everybody in whatever town they've decided is the, the center of the latest Bond movie. Here's one. Again, uh, it just it sounds like a name you'd expect to hear of kind of an oddly European baddie. Renger van de Zander, RVDZ. Coming at you. Yeah, there, there's RVDZ definitely. He throws his helmet at you. That's what it is. It's some sort of, of, of wicked helmet throw that just, you know, kills people for sure. Uh, who else? What about what about um, Albert Von Turnen Taxis? Remember him? No. He's a GT driver. He used to race in like GT1 at one point, I think, in like writer engineering Lamborghinis. And I remember him in GT3 cars. Member of member the royal family of a. Well, I can't remember where he's from. No, that's a witness but, uh, location name. It, we just got to be yeah, honest about but that. But that was a that was a name that you didn't forget. Harry Tinknell sounds like the computer tech savvy guy, not Q in James Bond, but like Q's assistant. You know, the kind of fumbly guy crashing, you know, knocking stuff off the table to get the super <laughs> laser shooting uh, wristwatch or whatever. Uh, he jumps out of somebody. But, I mean, really, you have to move to GTD at least. You know, there's a lot of, well, I mean, Lawrence Vantor, that, that's a name, right? We already have the hashtag Lawrence Vantor sex robot. But uh, Fred Makowicki, right? Um what about what about? He looks like a, a baddie. He looks like a baddie as well. Good old Fred. <laughs> he, I mean, that guy looks like he's sneaking in through the window, wearing the black and white striped, you know, kind of bad guy motif. He could play that for sure. Mm. Not not a driver, but 
I am sure that Dr. Wolfgang Ulrich has been in a horror film. Yes. Oh, man. He, uh, he's got a jar, right? He's got a jar of, I don't know, toes or fingers, something that he just kind of holds <laughs> and pets, doesn't he? Um, really stands out there. Boy, I'm trying to think who else. There'll be an obvious one, but that's not a bad list to start, is it? I think we're doing okay. Maybe the best baddie name of them all, Mirko Bortolotti. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that's good. There's that's some good. bodies. There's some bodies with that guy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, we probably come up with, I mean, Ben Keating is probably the only one of the few non-Jeff Westfall. You know, meh, you know, not really there. They could work on it. Maybe that's the thing we've learned in this episode, Stephen. There's still some... Sports car drivers who need to work on their bad guy names. Lot Schneider. This is an interesting one. He says, "If you have Graham, if if you have Graham, the question is, what what would you have to say for yourself for causing a Dubai monsoon? And if it's Stephen, the question is, what's it like working for a boss who can create rain havoc in the middle of the desert? Now, I wasn't aware that Graham had anything to do with the rain at the Dubai twenty four hours. Clearly, you." Oh, that's just the default, right? I mean, we know that. Hashtag Blaine Graham. Mm -hmm. What is it like, though, knowing that your man can affect... He's he's the British white storm of the (laughs) X-Men. Well, I mean, it's news to me that he can create rain havoc in a desert. Um and the fact that I'm hearing that news now is pretty terrifying because, you know, there's plenty of things that Graham can do to make me cry of an evening. Uh, but creating rain in the middle of a desert doesn't fill me with fill me with optimism for the future. So I guess I better work harder because I don't want to go to Bahrain at the end of the year for the WC and, and end up having to swim my way out. He's that a, doesn't sound fun. He's a fairly terrifying figure to begin with. So he is yeah well, folks don't know that uh, all right i'll read the next one to you jeff trout boxers are brief steven there's an assumption Ooh. that he wears anything jeff but okay well yeah i was gonna say commando but um what about boxer briefs because i believe i wear boxer briefs can i can i have that as an answer or do i have to pick one what do you reckon marshall i think you can anybody that wears boxers to me is just gross you're just, you know, I don't know why. It's just then it'll hang out. <sighs> yeah, ain't happening. Uh, all right, we're gonna go to our last question. Goes to James Counter. One more from James. What types of pieces <clears throat> do you get the most excited about riding? James says, "I love Stevens' pieces on Toyota." Thoughts and prayers, MP. So, young buck, what kind of stories? Get you the most excited. And I'm a little bit disturbed that we're following boxers or briefs with using the term most excited. <laughs> well, there's two things that spring to mind for me. One of them will come surprise as a surprise for most of the listeners, I'm sure, after this episode. The first one is I, I enjoy, I feel like I've got to a point now where I have enough of a contact book in the championships I, I work in that that I can write more analytical pieces, but whether it be for race or writing an insight piece, I like making a lot of phone calls, trying to work out what's actually going on, whether it be, you know, for the future for the next couple of years. I enjoy writing those sort of longer form, 
you know, pieces answering a question like what's something going to look like in a couple of years, how's certain technology progressing, you know, what's a particular grid going to look like. It's I enjoy writing those sort of pieces because you just the act of creating them, you find out so much information that never goes into the piece, which is always handy down the line. So I enjoy those because they take a bit of time and you have to put some thought into it. Um, the other one is I enjoy it and, you know, after coming across as like an egotistical maniac a bit earlier, uh, I enjoy writing stuff about history. Um, I enjoy, you know, writing a piece. Back in the 2000s. Back in the 2000s. Um, I enjoy, like, in the past when I've spoken to Derek Bell, my all-time hero, um, first time I interviewed him about his first Le Mans win because it was the 30th anniversary, I think, of his first Le Mans win, something like that. And um, I didn't know much about racing in the 70s uh and it kind of forced me to to prepare a little bit bought a book read about it had a bit of a knowledge base behind me got to sit down with him for half an hour to write a piece about that that was really good fun i enjoyed doing that it gave me an excuse to learn something about the past um and you know putting together little history features like i did one which is going to sound really ridiculous and and it's going to make everybody laugh now because you've just said in the 2000s when Peugeot raced in LMP1 by Stephen Kilby yeah Yeah. Um, but yeah it's it's the sort of things like I did a flashback to what the last time the Le Mans series went to Barcelona how different the grid is called a lot of people who don't don't race in the championship anymore who who were racing back then to sort of get thoughts and feelings on the the last sort of decade I enjoy those sort of things because it's uh, it sort of breaks up the sort of news cycle and you know writing session reports and all that stuff it's I enjoy those what about you I don't think the significant breaking-ish type news stories ever stop being a thrill i would hope they don't i mean you definitely get a rush there when you know something real and are the one to break that news i'm not talking about the so-and-so is the third driver in the second entry at sepang (laughs) Again, I know that those stories often need to be written. I could get not give less of a shit. Um, it's the... You I know, wonder why. Well, look, there, there's some folks who are amazing at that, and I bless them for churning those things out consistently. I just... Yeah. The breaking news stuff, the, the things that are going to change the sport, I always enjoy writing those. Again, I don't think that ever gets old. As I get older and have been doing this new profession longer, I do find that more of what I tend to write on the sporty car side is lending some context or thought think pieces. Also enjoy telling tales from the past, whether it's my own, uh, things that I experienced and can bring those forward. Try not to do that really for about the first 10 plus years that I did this. Um, and I'm just, I guess, feeling a little more confident in my place in the sport where I can have more eye pieces. Uh, I saw this, I experienced that, and to help bring past experiences or series, whatever, forward. You'll get this at some point, Stephen, when you've been doing this long enough. There will come a point where you realize that you have an audience of readers who are familiar with you, familiar with the sport, and you feel like you are preaching to the same choir all the time. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. 
there come a point where you realize, ah, you know, maybe I can't serve the same people in the same way anymore because as I have gotten older and I've learned more and whatnot, I have to realize that indeed there is someone brand new listening to this show for the very first time, reading this story for the first time, and they might not get the full context. They might not know enough about this sport to really understand what the hell I'm talking about. Um, and you start to realize that, oh, maybe there's value in writing in a slightly different way that is a little bit more inclusive and a little less inside baseball. I don't succeed at that all the time by any means, but I try and be more mindful of it. There'll come a point where that'll happen uh, if it hasn't happened already, where you just have to realize that there is a core demographic that likes what we do and reads what we do. Then you realize that there is also new folks falling behind them. And I can't leave them out by going so inside and so in depth where it's like reading a foreign language. They don't understand. Um, so that's fun. Trying to keep in mind the folks who are new, tell some stories that one of the things I'm working on now for the Rolex 24 is a 30-year look back at the 1990 race. So interviewed, and this will be in podcast and written form, Martin Brundle. Uh, spent some time yesterday on the phone with my friend Davy Jones, who was one of the overall winners, and Tony Dow, who's the team manager of it all. Put all that stuff together. I would expect many of the fans who are going to be following this year's race have no idea who won the 1990 race uh, or what made it unique and how there's one central aspect of that race that has shaped all races that followed. So I love doing stuff like that. I was around back then, saw those cars, wasn't at that race, I don't believe I was there, but love doing that kind of stuff. So get a little bit older, at least in my experience, try and be someone who keeps the past alive a little bit more, knowing that quite often you have uh, some new fans to the sport who are learning about that past for the, for the very first time. So that would be my answer. Those would be my answers, my man. Mm. And that's it. We're done. We're free. Oh my God. <laughs> this took so you much longer than I thought. Now for the yeah, rest of the night. It's five minutes away. <sighs> Steven, thanks for taking some time here, my man. Uh, an Any interesting uh, bisected show or whatever, however we should describe it. But glad that this is, yeah, the first, uh, I think, three-member week in Sports Cars episode. And uh, who knows if we'll do any more. Um, <laughs> enjoy. Can I just say something before we finish? No, but yes. Okay. Um, I leave for Daytona on Tuesday, and I've got to say, for for the listeners um, particularly, we're all going to miss the fact that you're not going to be there. Uh, it's It's been awesome going to Daytona the last few years, having you there on the desk opposite. It's always a really fun week. It's always – it's kind of become my favorite event of the year in a way, um, and it's, it's really sad that you're not going to be there this year. But you will be back, Marshall, and we – you know, not just me. It's not just our colleagues in the press room, but it's the fans who bump into you in the paddock. It's the people who are involved in the race teams. It's the fans who all know and love what you do, mate, who are going to miss you. But and we all look forward to you coming back, all of us. Um, so I just wanted to say, you know, we're going to miss you this year. 
Probably not Ryan Lewis, but I think almost everyone else will look forward to me coming back. I can't wait to see that guy. Uh, Well, that's really kind of you, man. Um, Yeah, it's going to be bizarre, but hey, uh, let's close the show with one of our favorite cliches, courtesy of Juan Pablo Montoya. It is what it is. Look forward to seeing what you crank out. Uh, we're probably going to be recording an episode here again in a couple of days, so who knows what that's going to be and what it's going to be like, but uh, we'll do this all again here shortly. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Stephen Kilby. This is your Week in Sports Cars, driven by your questions, submitted on a variety of social media platforms and supported by the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. And we will speak to you in a couple of days.